There was a time our happiness seemed never ending. I was so sure that where we were heading was right. Life was a road so certain and straight and unbending. Our little road with never a crossroad in sight. Back in the days when we spoke in civilized voices, women in white and sturdy young men at the oar. Back in the days when I let you make all my choices. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, April 22nd, 2018. My name is James Marino and the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist, and he's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Lynn Ahrens is joining us by telephone. Broadway fans know Lynn Ahrens for such shows as Once in the Silent, My Favorite Year, Ragtime, Matters of the Heart, Susigal. Uh, Rocky Anastasia um, represented on Broadway right now in two musicals, Once in the Silent Revival and Anastasia. Lynn, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So, you are doing a a lyrics and lyricists up at 92nd Street Y coming up. So why don't you tell us about that? Uh, Yeah, they invited me to do lyrics and lyricists um, kind of out of the blue, and I must confess that I thought it was a talk back. I thought I would be on stage with a moderator, you know, chatting and talking to the audience and receiving questions from the audience. And as it's turned out, it's a two hour show with basically just me, five singers, visuals, a director, and there are it's a two hour performance, and there are five of them. So, you know. <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed by the by the whole challenge of it, but I'm I'm really excited about it. I, I I wake up thinking about it, I go to sleep thinking about it, and I I hopefully have um, you know written a script that kind of gives a picture of what it's like to be a lyricist and and um, you know a career with ups and downs and and joys and sorrows and and a lot of kind of inside stories. Speaking of inside stories, <laughs> something Uh-oh. I just. I just heard last night uh, your your vocalist for this performance will be Nikki Renee Daniels, David Harris, Margot Seibert, Brandon Uranowitz, and Alton Fitzgerald White. And it wasn't until last night that I heard of a connection between you and Brandon Uranowitz that I didn't know of. And I thought maybe you could yeah. talk about that. <laughs> well, Brandon was one of our um, little boys, the character of the little the little boy in Ragtime. Um, I'm not sure how old he was. I'm guessing about 11, maybe, or 12 at the time. And 
you know, he's grown up to be a two-time Tony nominee. It's, you know, I keep, I keep saying I made him everything he is, but, you know, I, I think that's probably not true. But he was such a talented young boy. Um, he could sing. He could really act. And that's so hard to find in a kid, you know. So he showed a lot of promise very, very early. And, um, you know, I, I'm so happy to be working with him again on this Y show. It's really exciting. Whenever I uh, talk to somebody who releases an album simply of songs, I'm just talking about a pop-type album, I always say, what song almost made the album but didn't? So hmm. in this show, what okay. song almost made the show but did you had to reluctantly part with because it was going too long, you had a, a similar song? What did you eliminate? What won't we hear at the 92nd oh, Street Y? You won't hear a lot. I, you know, it was that I think was the hardest thing to just pick and choose what should be in the show. And and at one point, I had a lot of songs in there that I love, but nobody has really heard them too often. You know, they're from smaller shows, off Broadway shows. Um, and I I thought, you know, probably it would be better to to use things that people are a little more familiar with. But you know, there are a few songs that. Uh, didn't get into the show. One of which is is called um, something beautiful, which was at what which is um, a beautiful song uh, that I wrote uh, in response to one of my father's photographs of a beautiful old willow tree. And it's it's kind of about be- making art and living in New York City and uh, you know making something beautiful before you go. He was a photographer, and the song was kind of inspired by him. And and you know I I, I didn't put that in, although. Um, I just wish I could have, but, mm-hmm. you know, it felt like it was going to tip the show into the ballad land too much, you know, so that didn't make it in. And there's another <laughs> terrific song that I love from uh, The Glorious Ones, which is called My Body Wasn't Why, and it's sung by a woman who is, you know, at that age when she can't play the ingenue anymore in, uh-huh. in the theater, so mm-hmm. to move on to character roles, and I just love that <laughs> song. But again, I couldn't include it. So, you know, there, there are a lot of those kinds of decisions that you make putting together a show like this, I guess. All right. Now, it wasn't that long ago we had a big um, ceremony, so to speak, at 54 Below, where indeed there was a celebration of 30 years that you were working with Stephen Flaherty. At what point was it when you said, wait a minute, this isn't just one show or two shows we've done. This is something. We're really a team now. Do you recall when that happened? Oh, golly. You know, I never I never add up or look back too much. Um, I don't know that there was a specific moment, but I do know that 30 years with the same collaborator, I think it marked a milestone for both of us in our minds. You know, it, it's that's an accomplishment right there. You bet. You haven't, you bet. You haven't killed each other in all that time. Right. You know, sure. and, you know sure. and you've been productive and you've been friends. And, and we just really thought it would be worth a big party. And um you know, so that's what we did. We went to 54 Below. We had, I think, 18 or 19 of our beloved singers who've been in all of our shows. And um, we put together six six concerts there. And it was such a, such a celebration and such a joy to be able to do that. And, you know, now this year we're coming up on our 35th year of collaboration. So stay tuned. We may have another uh, somewhere. <laughs> Who knows? I hope, I hope that's true. <laughs> Yeah. On a related note, uh, actually, um, I was talking with someone last night, and they said, has Lynn written with anyone other than Stephen Flaherty? And the only thing that leapt to my mind was A Christmas Carol with Ar- Alan Menken. But um, yeah. 
I yeah, did that with Alan at one year, and uh, it turned into 10 years because we did huh. a show every year for 10 years at Madison Square Garden, so it, it really felt like we wrote 10 shows together. Um, and really, you know, in my in my adult life, the only other person that I've collaborated with is Michael Gore. Um, and I wrote a couple of songs with Michael for the movie Camp, you know, the independent movie. Oh, uh, yeah, that, sure. um, yeah, I was set in a, a theater summer camp, and um, I, there are two really, really fun songs in that in that movie uh, that I wrote with Michael. But basically, it's been Stephen, and uh, you know the variety and the uh, the breadth of of worlds that we've been able to tap into for our musicals has, has kept it so interesting and so so much fun that you know, like why why change, you know. You guys didn't write, but you didn't write the ladies who lunch, did you? <laughs> no, we didn't write the ladies who lunch, <laughs> and you know who did. And he makes a cameo in the movie, actually. Yes, which is yeah. Delightful, yeah. You didn't. Uh, uh, did you write the Schoolhouse Rock stuff with Stephen as well? No, actually, uh, the Schoolhouse Rock stuff I wrote with myself. I was a oh. composer, you know, and I played guitar, uh, and I wrote. All the Schoolhouse Rock songs that I did, I wrote myself. I wrote the music myself. So uh, that was before I, long before I met Stephen, actually. Um, yeah, I had a whole career. This is one of the things I'm going to talk about in my Why show, actually. Uh, I basically built a whole career on five chords on the guitar. <laughs> you know, I did F, C, G, D, A, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm musical, so I could weave melodies around major chords pretty easily. And, um, you know, that got me made me able to write all the schoolhouse rock songs and lots and lots of, of uh, commercials and children's television and, uh, you know, had a whole career before I met Stephen. So. All right. I hate to ask the famous cliche of what comes first, the music or the lyrics, but I'm asking for a specific reason. So uh, do you write lyrics first? Sometimes. Uh -huh. But, you know, a lot of the time, I, I personally love getting the music first. Uh -huh. And, I'm always nudging Stephen to give me, give me a vamp, give me a couple of notes, <laughs> give me a, any little noodle on the piano. Because, you know, I think Marilyn Bergman said the, the <laughs> words are on the tips of the notes. And, uh, you know, I just feel and hear so much in the music uh, that I love getting, getting the music first. But, you know, it's really a little of both. Um, you know, sometimes I'll have a good idea. Sometimes he'll have a good idea. You know, a lot of times we're batting it back and forth in the same room. So it's a very... It, 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 I can't give you an either or. It's, it's sort of both. All right. But uh, the reason I'm asking the question is the times when you have written the lyric first and you've given it to him. Now, given the fact that you composed, you've obviously had a melody in your head, right? Uh, and then you give it to him yeah. and you say, wow, that's you did so much better than the melody I had in my head. I would imagine that's uh, the way you feel. Totally. That's exactly how I feel. I can give you an, a really good example, too. I, um, Back to Before in Ragtime mm -hmm. was entirely a lyric first, and I wrote just a, a draft of this lyric. It just poured out of me, uh, and I faxed it to him first thing in the morning. This was before the Internet, you know, and, sure. I, um, and he received the fax, and, and I had a lyric in my head, and what he came up with was radically different from what I had done. I couldn't believe it, but, and it was so much better. And, you know, that's why I work with a composer, because, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you can't, I have too much respect for the theater to think I could ever write for the theater with five chords. You know? <laughs> <laughs> too late well, to learn anymore. So, yeah. Peter, I'm so glad you asked that, because actually I was thinking about that recently. It came up with a discussion about Rodgers and Hammerstein, and it, yeah. it's, always, it's always just plainly stated mm -hmm. that Hammerstein wrote the lyrics first, 
in almost every case and then handed mm-hmm. them to Rogers. And I always wonder, in, in his case, he, he was not also a com- uh, composer as, as far as we know. Uh, and I wonder if um, when that does happen with l- lyricists, if they tend to have uh, some kind of melody in their heads or if some of them write the lyrics just as poetry and then count on the composer to, to, to do what he or she does. Well, we are talking about Lynn, but I will take a detour here to tell you that Hammerstein was famous for writing melodies to his lyrics that everybody said were terrible beyond belief. <laughs> so, uh, so he did indeed do that. Back to Lynn. <laughs> well, I think everybody you know, has a different writing process. And, you know, some people, I'm sure, do write a poem without any music in their heads. I, I, I read somewhere that Betty Comden used to write lyrics to existing, to other songs that other people had <laughs> sure. written. But then, but she wouldn't tell the composer. She would just <laughs> hand over the lyric, you know, and then they would set it however they chose to set it. So I, I think it just, you know, however you do it, you do it. I, I, I am a little loath to do it sometimes because I find I, I fall into the same rhythms uh, without music mm-hmm. to work from. I, you know, I, I, I tend to fall into, uh, you know, on the 15th of day and then in the 15th of May in the jungle of Newell in the heat of the day, <laughs> you know, I start to write doggerel and I like, or Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and I think, oh, stop it. That, that rhythm is so boring. So I do like to get music first if I can, if I can uh, wean it out of my composer partner. So um, you have two shows represented on Broadway right now, uh, Once in the Silent, The Revival, and Anastasia. And uh, how do you um, – what's it like to see both of, your, both of your pieces up there, one of them uh, reinvented from its original production, and you've got a long history with Once on this Island uh, dating back to the workshops. So tell us um, – you know, is it a uh, – how was the collaborative process in redeveloping Once on this Island? Um, it was it was such an interesting thing. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting to see your very first Broadway show back on Broadway running simultaneously with your most recent show. You know, Once on this Island uh-huh. was our first show. Anastasia is the most recent one to be produced. And so that's kind of a treat. But um, as far as – Seeing Once on this Island now, seeing how Michael Arden has reinvented it, it's actually quite stunning to me and, and, and surprising because we really didn't change any words. You know, there's some new dance music because we have the wonderful Camille A. Brown who did the choreography, but, you know, there are no new words. It's the same text. It's the same story. And yet Michael has taken what was this gorgeous, joyous Caribbean fairy tale uh, that ran on Broadway in a proscenium stage, and he has somehow managed to make it a contemporary, immersive, uh, you know, experience that that is totally relevant and totally different. So, you know, each of the each of the performances were so um, each of the productions were so different and so valid each in their own way. But to watch this one evolve, at at first I was kind of baffled. You know, I I was like, what's happening? I don't understand. There's a sand, there's a sand pit and and there's a goat and I don't know what's happening. And then little by little, I began to realize what he was up to. And I, I, it just, it just uh, really blew my mind. You know, I, I, I loved it. And I thought this is so inventive and so original and, and so different and, and so, um, so moving to see a show 
kind of grow up in that way, you know. So uh, we're, we're, we couldn't be happier with it. You have um, the comparison of the two shows, um, Once in this Island being so – uh, not in a pejorative sense, but low tech and very practical. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then you yeah. have Anastasia, which is just amazing with the technology. Uh, yes. And yet, I hadn't you're, thought of that. Yes. <laughs> and you're putting up both of these shows um, at you know nearly the same time. Did, did were you going back and forth from theater to theater, and 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 was it a dramatic change to uh, to uh, deal with both of them at the same time? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, Anastasia certainly started first, and, and it was mounted up in Hartford, uh, at Hartford Stage first. And so, you know, we worked on it there, then it came in, and, and at that time, Once on this Island was kind of in development, but it hadn't really started production yet. But I think, um, yes, to compare the, the two shows and the, the difference, you know, Once on this Island is, is um, completely human-driven. There's very, very little tech in it at all, and technology, I should say. And um, it's 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 sort of essential theater. You know, it, it boils theater down to people sitting in a circle hearing a beautiful story told really well and really interestingly. And and Anastasia is a a beautiful, sweeping, epic adventure that almost has to be done with technology because it covers so much ground and so many locations and, you know, there's traveling involved and the way that Darko Trezniak has um, created the world and and what's happening on stage is so fluid and so filmic and it's a, a kind of a filmic nod to the original animated movie as well. So it has, you know, these beautiful, beautiful visuals and, and, very it's very it feels very active but it's it's a whole it's the other end of the spectrum from once on this island you know so to have these two shows within six blocks of one another is is it's extraordinary it's really extraordinary it sure is uh and of course for one of them you wrote the book as well and for the other one you didn't when you're only asked to do lyrics and you don't have the responsibility of the book uh (laughs) i would imagine that writing the book is not just two times harder than writing with the lyrics i would imagine it's four or six times harder uh do you seem to uh feel that you have so much less to do when you only do lyrics well not really. <laughs> you know, it's it's actually I am much easier. It's, it's much easier for me to collaborate with myself than uh-huh. to collaborate with somebody else because you know when I have an argument one way or another I always win it. You know, mm-hmm. and when you're working, you know, when you're working with a book writer, and you know, of course, Terrence McNally is is not only the book writer but an old and a very very dear friend. This is mm-hmm. our third show together, mm-hmm. but we always butt heads and we always have differences of opinion and we always uh you know are, are duking it out at the at the writing table so you know it's a, it's a it's a in a way a harder process but in a way it's a more satisfying process or equally as satisfying because you know his words inspire lyrics they just do he's a he's a beautiful writer and he comes up with these rich monologues that want to leap into song so you know it's a thrilling experience but it's it's not easier you know it's not it's totally not easier it's it's equally as hard as as doing it myself i think but just in a different way yeah most interesting yeah, yeah <laughs> before we exactly. before we started recording this morning um uh what is your life like on a day-to-day basis aside from people like us annoying you with phone calls early in the morning <laughs> um 
uh, and uh, let's take out of the out of the equation here that you have two Broadway shows running. So, what is uh, Lynn Aaron's life? You get up in the morning and you have a blank piece of paper. What is that? What do you do next? Yes. Well, before the blank piece of paper <laughs> comes the coffee, <laughs> and uh, and you know, I I ease into writing. I sort of. Um, you know, I read emails, and then I look out of the window, and and I'm I'm very lucky. I am sitting right now in a in a my very old ramshackle farmhouse in upstate New York, and looking out at magnificence and mountains and uh, birds and sunlight. And in the city, I have a, a terrace outside my window, and I garden. So I look out at that, and I I kind of get my. Um, you know, I, I start the morning looking at nature, I would say, uh, and it really is very inspiring to, to do that. And, and then I start to write, and I, I putter about, and I usually go to bed thinking about a problem that I need to solve. So when I wake up in the morning, it's, it's really first top of mind, and I, I start thinking about it. I go back to what I was working on the night before, and I, I uh, try to write something, you know, and um, my attention span probably lasts for about an hour. Then I go eat something. <laughs> then I go back to work. Then I go eat something else. I sort of munch my way through the day. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a typical day. And, um, you know, I usually do have a, a, a full work day. Often Stephen will come over or I'll go over to his place. And, you know, we, we, we work all the time, the two of us. So that's, that's kind of it. Well, that's great. So, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio to talk about uh, your work. We really appreciate it. Uh, Lynn Aaron's A Lyric Life is coming up at the 92nd Street Y. It's coming up uh, Saturday, May 5th, Sunday, May 6th, Monday, May 7th. Um, we'll have links to that in the show notes. We didn't mention J- Jason Danley is the directing it. Mary, the wonderful Mary Mitchell yeah. Candle, Campbell is the music director. We have Nikki Renee Daniels, David Harris, Margaret Seibert, Brandon Uranowitz, and Elton Fitzgerald White. Couldn't you get anybody with talent? Yeah, I know. It's, it's not too deluxe, is it? I know. <laughs> I'm very excited about it. They're all amazing talents. It's mm-hmm. such an honor to be on stage with them. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, it's you're going to have a couple of hours worth of music. Tickets start at $70, and um, 92nd Street Y has also uh, um, 35 and under tickets for $30, so check it out. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Life to begin. I'm as contented and done, done, and that's what he gets. Happy for tea in their cups and the holes in their nets. First up in our reviews, Peter, you got a chance to see My Fair Lady at the Vivian Beaumont that just opened up. So why don't you get us started on that? It's funny. I was thinking of Peter Stone while watching it. <clears throat> Not that Peter Stone had anything to do with My Fair Lady. He certainly didn't. But uh, Peter Stone once uh, in the 80s, 90s, made uh, an observation that today we don't have choreography anymore. We have scenery that dances instead. 
And this occurred to me while watching My Fair Lady, which is not a British musical, of course, in the sense that it was written by one American and one Viennese gentleman. But, uh, of course, the feel of it is very British. It deals with British class systems, and, of course, it deals with uh, how one pronounces words in the English language. So that's the main thrust of it. But... I, of all the major musicals, uh, especially from that period, this one has the least amount of dancing when you really think of it. Now, of course, when it was trying out New Haven, it did have an enormous ballet um, for Eliza Doolittle and uh, everybody around her getting her ready uh, for uh, the ball. But that was cut. But I mean, really, for all intents and purposes, the really the only number that really dances in the show is "Get Me to the Church on Time," functioning as an eleven o'clock number. But uh, I was so aware of that while watching it that this was the case. Now, this is a marvelous revival in many respects. Um, it looks different from any other My Fair Lady you've seen because, of course, the Beaumont has a thrust stage and not a proscenium. But uh, Imagination is here at every turn. When you come into the theater, what you will see is this enormous uh, expanse of London. I mean, it goes beyond the uh, – it goes into the audience with a little bit of the scenery um, establishing London. But what's really interesting is way, 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 way to the lip of the stage is one tiny little flower basket. And this is Eliza's flower basket. She sells flowers, you'll recall. And so you really have London being so imperious and this tiny little uh, flower basket indicating how tiny Eliza Doolittle is in the scheme of things. So automatically, even before the show starts, it's really something to see and make you realize this is not going to be just um, an ordinary revival. I was a little surprised not to see Rain. Um, <laughs> I understand not getting the actors wet, but the whole point of the beginning is the fact that um, it's raining and getting a taxi for the Ainsford Hills, who are the swells, uh, is is something that's germane to the plot. So uh, no rain. And Anyway, they're still trying to get taxis. Um, so, so here we are. There's Eliza Doolittle um, doing the best she can. And what's also a smart masterstroke from uh, Bartlett Chair is that later a woman comes on with an enormous pushcart of flowers. And again, you realize how down and out Eliza Doolittle is in comparison, that she isn't even one of the more successful uh, flower sellers. So images like this really um, does very uh, well by the show. So um, Henry Higgins comes on and um, it's very nice when he talks about simple phonetics uh, in his speech uh, because um, he's not bragging, but he has pleasure when he delivers that word. He also sings the score. Of course, it's very famous that Rex Harrison talked his way through and even influenced a great many shows after that. Plenty of people who weren't attached to musicals, Maurice Evans and Tenderloin comes to mind, um, were, were hired because uh, Rex Harrison set the tone that you don't have to sing anymore. Well, it's nice to hear the notes. Yeah, and um, and it's, it's really a pleasure under these circumstances because you don't expect to hear um, singing in this show because after all, um, we're used to uh, so many recordings. Uh, even uh, Kelsey Graham did a recording, so uh, we're used to that. But here's Harry Haddon Patton. I guess that's how it's pronounced. Maybe it's Hayden. I don't know. But um, making his Broadway debut. And uh, while he does seem to underplay much of the show, 
I think that the reason for this is, after all, Henry Higgins is quite a nasty guy to Eliza for much of the show, virtually all of the show. And I think that's why it's underplayed. He doesn't roar out his insults the way that Rex Harrison did. So I think that that adjustment has been made because time has passed and we really do not uh, accept this type of behavior from men anymore. So kudos to Bartlett chair for toning him down in that way. Some may find it not as flamboyant and as a result, um, not as arresting. And it, at times it may even seem to you that this actor, um, just doesn't have the star quality or, but I think it's a conscious choice to, to underplay. So I think that, um, under the circumstances is a very, very good thing to do. He's also much younger. I think this is a problem when, um, Eliza says, uh, Colonel Pickering is closer to my age than you are, but, uh, because he's not, but, um, he is is younger and uh, that of course makes any potential romance we'll see if there is any uh, a possibility so um, Colonel Pickering very very uh, good performance by Alan Cordner uh, who ironically enough I started watching Topsy Turvy last night not even knowing he was in it but uh, he was so um, very good and he takes a lot of pleasure in uh, when uh, Henry Hagen slams the French uh, in his uh, opening song Why Can't the English so uh, immediately we're interested in him so um it's it, it, the set is amazing and um some may even argue it's too much because you don't just see Higgins study you see three different rooms at his house thanks to a turntable and one of those is the bathroom and if you know the movie of my fair lady there is a scene where the servants take Eliza in the bathroom to spruce her up and that actually happens here in the show as well there's also a scene in the hallway which may be a little extraneous and I will say the second time the turntable was used to uh, show us the entire house uh, struck me as uh, an unnecessary time of doing it but um lauren ambrose well you know she got one of the nicest compliments as a, an actress in a musical can get the night i was there because when she sang i could have danced all night when she sang the final syllable the final word night the people did not wait to applaud after the song was over while she was holding the note night they started applauding then so that's pretty impressive when you can do that she's surprising a lot of people god knows there was plenty of scuttlebutt saying oh my god are you kidding lauren ambrose playing that role and of course this may be the most difficult role in the history of musical theater for actresses because after all think of all the things you have to be you do. You have to be the gutter snipe. You have to be somebody who's learning. You have to be the elegant lady. You have to have the backbone as t- uh, by the time you get to without you and uh, or even show me for that matter. So this is a tough role and she certainly maneuvers it quite well indeed. One of the most interesting facts of this production is involving the rain in Spain. In every production we've seen, there's a moment where, of course, Eliza starts saying the rain in Spain quite perfectly. Here she doesn't. Here, the moment where usually Eliza says the rain in Spain, etc., um, she struggles with it. So she, it's almost like a halfway house. She starts to say Rhine, and um, but 
at the last second is able to segue into rain. And she does that with the four words. Um, so I think that's more realistic than what we've seen in the past. I, I do agree that all of us have epiphanies and uh, we do go from one inability to suddenly being able. But this is a, a valid choice, too, that she struggles. She doesn't get it all at once. Now, when I saw this happen, I said, oh, 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 I know what's going to happen in the next scene. This is great. What's going to happen is that all the servants are going to really react, and they should. This has never been done, but I think it should be done. All the servants are going to react when suddenly Eliza isn't speaking in Cockney anymore when she sings, I could have danced all night. Suddenly she's elegant. Suddenly she's getting every word pronounced perfectly. And I really thought Bartlett Shear was going to get that because he did get the struggle of the rain in Spain and made us realize that she had gone from one to the other. I expected the servants to be looking at each other and saying, my God, listen to her. Isn't this amazing? Suddenly she's speaking correctly. And um, that didn't happen. So I, I, I got greedy. Uh, I really thought because Bartlett Shear has so much imagination, he was going to have imagination there as well. Uh, Norbert Leo Butts um, as Alfred P. Doodle, quite good quite good. Uh, I think there'll be some controversy on Get Me to the Church on Time because um, we're suddenly in, uh, I may be overstating the fact, but we're suddenly in a drag club. Um, so Alfred P. Doolittle um, frequents some interesting uh, places, <laughs> apparently. Um, and uh, a friend of mine even said, gee, you know, for all this talk of the woman back home, is is there really a woman back home, given that he's this very strange um transvestite type of nightclub so uh but uh, of course the british have a, a greater tradition with drag than um, americans do so maybe we can uh, pass that over he's quite fun um and um i also liked the direction when eliza comes in uh, to higgins study and she's been cleaned up and he's there you know trying to get his five pounds and uh, he immediately uh, he immediately recognizes her, uh, which reminds me of Lancelot Gabo and Merchant of Venice saying it's a wise father who recognizes his child. So he does that. And um, and I like that moment quite a bit. A lot of wonderful touches. Um, certainly the Ascot Gavotte, um, when they go to Ascot, the, the famous Cecil Beaton costumes in black and white. Uh, no, we're pretty much in lavender and lilac. Uh, speaking of lilac, um, <laughs> when Freddie Irish Hill sings, are there lilac trees? There are lilac trees on the set, which I thought was a, a nice little uh, detail. Jordan Donica plays him, by the way, and uh, does a very nice job with the song. So anyway, um, we uh, we do have uh, very nice scenery here as well as the costumes. Um, uh, a credit must be given to uh, Catherine Zuber, who always does wonderful work for the costumes. But... Um, I, I applaud her for not just going to black and white for the um, for the Ascot scene and um, lavender is really um, and, and shades of that are really the color that she chose. And it really comes off as, as quite impressive. And uh, it certainly got a hand as soon as um, people saw him. <sighs> wow. Diana Rigg as Mrs. Higgins. Please, I beg of you, if you see this revival in the scene after the Ascot um, 
races start when she starts talking about her grandmother and uh, gin and all that kind of stuff. Please watch Diana Rigg uh, <laughs> and the expressions on her face as she, she's trying to make do of uh, this conversation that she's not used to. She is truly hilarious in a very small scene and certainly at the end of the, towards the end of the show when she uh, exits, she certainly got exit applause and uh, deserved it. It's a small part. No, but nevertheless, she's fabulous in it. So is Linda Muggleston as Mrs. Pierce, uh, who's both um, autocratic and aristocratic in her own way, uh, because employees tend to take on, um, <clears throat> well, servants especially, uh, tend to take on the uh, characteristics of their um, employers. And we get a lot of Henry Higgins in Mrs. Pierce, thanks to Linda Muggleston. So I think she's really, really quite wonderful uh, in this role and um, worth seeing, really. Um, <laughs> I I think you're going to be very much uh, impressed by Mrs. Pierce in a way you you haven't been in the past. And um, and certainly uh, the case of uh, Henry Higgins' um, servants, watch them as well. Um, They're they're very much into character, even though, as I said, I would uh, prefer for them to really uh, react when – when we're in that situation. Well, the thing is what's really great about Lauren Ambrose too is that she really – makes us care for her when she walks into that study for the first time because all of us have been in situations where we have entered a room where supposedly people better than we are whether they are or not is another issue but we believe the people are better than we are and we really feel inferior and she really makes us care for her at that moment it's really quite an impressive performance and I am very glad very glad to see that somebody who was doubted the way so many people uh, doubted Laura Osnes when she came on the scene because she'd won that TV thing uh, for Greece, that suddenly here's somebody who really is up to the challenge. And um, I I thought that was quite fine. Uh, It looks so different on a thrust stage and, but it does give the show room to breathe. And I like that quite a bit, quite a bit indeed. So um, I think it's a very solid revival of My Fair Lady and what a pleasure to see what really is becoming a genre in musical theater, and that is the Lincoln Share, uh, the Lincoln Center Bartlett Share uh, production. This is the third one we had. It is, to use the cliche, the third jewel of the Triple Crown, and it's wonderful to see that we actually have a place where we can go and see classic musicals done with style, and yet not just perfunctorily, with a lot of reinvention in the in mind. So we're very grateful to Lincoln Center and Bartlett Share for creating this new genre of, yes, we're going to have a full orchestra, so the music can sound as wonderful as it did way back when, and uh, we can appreciate that we have a show that really um, involves taste and um, doesn't pander to the lowest common denominator, as so many musicals do now. So it's really very nice to have it back, but to, to have it done with such loving care, and that's what Lincoln Center and Bartlett Share do. All right. So... Uh... That is Peter's review of My Fair Lady. Michael and I are going to be seeing this. Uh, I'm seeing it this week. Michael's seeing it uh, uh, in a couple of weeks. So I'm sure that we'll revisit this once more again in later podcasts. Uh, Michael and Peter, you both got a chance to see a show called Dance a Little Closer. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with that? Oh, yes. This is a 
musical that was based on the play Idiot's Delight, which uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning play from 1936, later made into a film uh, by MGM in 1939. And it's uh, I'm going to leave most of this to Peter because he has much more of a history with this show than I do, which is basically nil uh, on my part. Um, it was a famous or infamous uh, example of a show that closed on Broadway on opening night. Um, and it's got book and lyrics by Alan J. Lerner, music by Charles Strauss. And this, uh, the cast of this uh, one night concert presentation at the Green Room 42 included uh, Michael Osso as Harry, Julia Knittel, K N I T E L, as Cynthia, uh, Ed Dixon as Dr. Winkler, Arbinder Robinson as Charles Castleton, Stearns Matthews as Edward Dunlop, Heinrich Holloway uh, was played by Stephen Carl McCaslin, uh, Cheryl Howard, B.B., Kimberly Faye Greenberg, Shirley Delight, uh, one of the delights, uh, Christine Knittel, it was Elaine, the other delight, Eric Knittel as Captain Muller, uh, Reverend Boyle uh, was played by Daniel Waldstad, Hester Boyle by Janet Finale, Roger Butterfield by Paul Thomas Ryan, and Johan Hartog played by Kenneth Tiger or Tigger. Um, this is a sh another example of a show in which I decided to go into it cold. Uh, I could have uh, researched it, obviously, to some extent, and there is a recording of the score. Um, I think it was made somewhat after the fact. Uh, Peter can uh, put me straight on that. Uh, but I thought I would just go in and see it completely cold because I like to have that experience sometime, sometimes, especially for older pieces. And I really was ice cold because I've never seen the play or the film, uh, never read the play, uh, completely cold for me. I, my reaction is that I can certainly understand why it was a flop. It's about these people, um, who are, uh, holed up in a, in a, uh, resort, I guess in Switzerland. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And they are, uh, it's, uh, it's supposed to be a very, uh, very, very shaky time for the world with uh, with rumbles of war. Uh, the the I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes of this uh, musical was to update the action. But I certainly understand why they did it. They wanted to make the the threat seem uh, very current, and and you know certainly God knows it, that in in um, nineteen eighty uh, as well as. Uh, any other time we can think of that, that's always something that's going to happen. Uh, but uh, I didn't think that it worked very well in terms of the score having any stylistic cohesiveness. Um, the uh, I, there were two songs that 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 absolutely leapt out as me as being very wonderful and beautiful. One is the title song, uh, Dance a Little Closer, and another one was a song called Another Life. Um, this one-night performance also had the uh, distinction of having two original cast members present, Len Carriou and Liz Robertson. And uh, Liz Robertson sang Another Life, which she sang originally. So um, that was very special. And also special was the fact that uh, Charles Strauss, who wrote the music and is now 90 years old, was was on hand uh, for the performance and to sign copies of his memoir afterwards. So I think uh, for me, this is um, 
an example of something that absolutely is fascinating to see. But we, uh, in this case, it seemed to me uh, that it proved it, it showed why it was a flop and and would not. To me, it would not give any reason for anyone in the audience to think that it um, is likely for revival. So I'd love to hear Peter's thoughts, including I'm not sure if I got the date right of the musical. So you can send me straight on that as well. Well, um, 35 years ago, almost to the day, I was invited to see the workshop of Dance a Little Closer. And it started with Alan J. Lerner coming out looking extraordinarily nervous hmm. and saying literally to the audience, literally, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. And this was an amazing moment for me because I got interested in show music because the first album of that kind I ever heard was the soundtrack to Gigi, which uh, astonished me. And the first Broadway show I ever saw was My Fair Lady, which astonished me. And to have Alan J. Lerner essentially responsible for my interest in musical theater to come out and apologize to me and the rest of the audience was an amazing moment. Mm. And it certainly didn't instill confidence in what was going to happen. And there were investors there. So in a way, it's amazing that uh, the show ever did wend its way to Broadway. As it turned out, I was out of town uh, working on a TV show when this was on Broadway. So I never saw the actual Broadway production, just that uh, workshop. Wow. But even when I went in, I was thinking of Lagos Agri, who wrote a marvelous book. Uh, anybody who wants to write a play should really uh, read The Art of Dramatic Writing by Lagos Agri, where he uses as an example of what not to do, Idiot's Delight. Talks, <laughs> that is his example of a bad play. He says the characters had nothing to bind them. There are no people. There are no people who really matter, you know, all that kind of business. So um, I, I have a feeling that neither Strauss nor Lerner uh, read The Art of Dramatic Writing or at least uh, took it to heart because um, that – and ironically enough, the movie – version has two different endings, which at least suggests that there was some sort of uh, wavering on what to do. So, uh, so it may not be the greatest play at all. It was hard to understand what was going on um, in terms of the play um, with this presentation. But after all, these things are made to show off the score. And I do believe the songs are very attractive. And um, I love the song, He Always Comes Home to Me. And here it is uh, almost a week later, and I'm still humming it in my head uh, when I get up in the morning. So uh, it's a very lovely waltz. And it was sung by Liz Robinson uh, in the original. So one has to applaud the show for um, having two gay characters in it who want to get married. And, um, of course, that was something that was unheard of then. And it's sort of satisfying now to think that uh, while it was a problem then, uh, it's not – well, we'll see what happens as this administration goes on. But at the moment, it's it's not a problem. But to, to bring this up in 1983 was, was hot stuff. Mm. And uh, there is a religious man on board who has the power to uh, marry people and will he do it, um, which leads to a song called I Don't Know, which, to be perfectly frank, is a recycled melody from Applause. Um, <clears throat> it was the original opening number of Applause <clears throat> in which, uh, you, if you know Applause, there's a song now called Backstage Babble in which um, people are not – actually singing words, but nonsense syllables. The implication being that when people go backstage after an opening night and talk, there's nothing worth hearing. Well, originally that wasn't the case. <laughs> originally, um, they actually had people sing, it's a bomb, 
it's a hit. If you want entertainment, this is it, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but anyway, it became, I don't know in this show and, um, it doesn't really lead to anything. I'm sorry to say it doesn't advance the action forward. So, um, but uh, as an album, it's a very pretty one. And, uh, of course, you know, albums really do mask the flaws of shows because, of course, books are most usually the problem. And as many people have said over the years, wow, you never know from the album of Candide. You never know from the al- album of House of Flowers that these things were flops. You know, God, the scores are so wonderful. How could these shows fail? You might have a similar feeling if you listen to the album of Dance a Little Closer. So, uh, so while I understand um, that uh, anybody seeing the show uh, on uh, Monday night at the Green Room, uh, which is in the hotel on um, 10th Avenue at um, 42nd Street, while I don't imagine any producer in the room would say, oh, wait, 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 there's got to be a revival, I do think the album is worth hearing and certainly uh, worth having. Yes, I, uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't read my own notes. The one uh, Broadway performance, official performance of Dance a Little Closer was May 11th, 1983. And by the way, we should say this uh, concert performance that we saw was directed uh, and had the uh, libretto abridged and adapted by Stephen Carl McCaslin. And it had arrangements and musical direction by James Horan or Horan, H-O-R-A-N. I uh, was surprised somewhat to hear uh, that in his introduction to the performance, Stephen Carl McCaslin mentioned that they really had to cobble the score together um, from just like some lead sheets and and things of that sort, and uh, that the bulk of it had to be transcribed by James Horan from the from the recording. And I thought, gosh. Um, uh, didn't Charles Strauss, who was sitting right there, didn't he have <laughs> uh, something more extensive than that, even for a big flop? But that's what they said. So, uh, yeah. you know, you know, yeah. these 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 performances, sometimes they're really of tremendous archival interest. And, and I guess this would be an example of that as well. I guess they'll find it all in the Secaucus warehouse someday. But it is odd that uh, a 1983 show should be. Uh, so um, <laughs> looking for material, you know, it's the type of thing we associate with the 20s and 30s. So uh, 83 is a little late in the game for, for materials not to be kept uh, just on the off chance that something will happen later. Right. All right. Uh, a show that they did find the existing material to is Children of a Lesser God. And Michael and Peter got a chance to see that. So, uh, Peter, why don't you start us off with that? Why is it every time I hear the title, Children of a Lesser God, I think <laughs> E-I-E-I-O. It scans so perfectly with Old McDonald <laughs> as a farm. So um, uh, this show has taken a lot of heat, um, I have to say. I've heard a lot of people say it's dated. I've heard a lot of people say that uh, it's dreary. Um, I, I, I have not heard good words on it. And it, I guess that may be a reason why I didn't feel as others did. Uh, I thought it was quite strong in many uh, instances. This is the story of a teacher who is going to teach um, the deaf, and um, he doesn't know uh, much, if any, uh, American Sign Language. And uh, so the difficulties of being a teacher in those circumstances, I think, was very well established by Mark Medoff, the um, 
the writer. This is a play, of course, that did win uh, the Tony Award for Best Play. And some people said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you know what happened? Back then, it came out of nowhere. I mean, it didn't go out of town. It just previewed, you know, and out of town was still somewhat happening in those days. Um, you know, so it took us all by surprise. And John Rubenstein was so wonderful in it. And so was Phyllis Freilich. And, um, <clears throat> but I think this is a very powerful show in the sense that Mark Madoff really did his homework. Um, I don't know if he actually was a teacher of the deaf, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if he um, had been because he, I think he's covered every base about how difficult it is to deal with um, people who don't hear. Um, we take so much for granted in hearing. We don't give it a thought. Um, but uh, here are people who – and of course, one of the big issues of the play is the fact that the, the deaf people don't want to be treated as um, certainly children of a lesser god or for that matter as if there's anything wrong at all. And uh, that's a that was coming into being uh, in the 80s where um, the so-called – you should pardon the expression – handicapped um, – People wanted to ignore that and um, tried the best they could to ignore it. And that's a big issue in this play. And um, I, I, I still think it works. And um, a lot of people said to me, oh, my God, the scenery. Oh, it's so dreary. The original scenery wasn't much either, by the way. Um, in fact, I think this is a step up that Derek Mullane um, probably had a few more bucks at his disposal than um, – than the original set designer did because um, um, I thought it really um, looked pretty uh, threadbare way back when. But um, I think Joshua Johnson, uh, sorry, Joshua Jackson is doing a very good job in a very difficult role because what he does is not only say his lines, but he says the lines that indeed um, Sarah Norman, played by Lauren Ridloff, uh, she's the deaf person, um, is saying. Now, there are also supertitles uh, in the show. Uh, not that everything is translated and uh, why certain things are and certain things aren't. Uh, I'll leave um, for, for other people to give their opinions of. But um, but what really impressed me is um, as, as every difficulty occurred, I said to myself, yeah, that would really happen, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, that would happen too, wouldn't it? It seemed to me he really did a thorough job, and that's why I like Children of a Lesser God. All right, Michael, what did you think? Well, first of all, before I forget, uh, a friend of mine saw the show the other night and mentioned to me something that was very surprising to me. He sat at the rear orchestra and he said that this uh, super titles were completely invisible to him. Oh. I'm very surprised to hear that they didn't make mm. some accommodation. Maybe yeah. there is, is some other way and he didn't hear about it. Uh, maybe they have hand out devices for people who uh, can't see the, the titles being projected above the stage, ab above the proscenium. Uh, but I, that doesn't sound very likely, does it? Um, so I would recommend that if you do see this production, ask about that, because I think it would be um, kind of difficult to not be able to read the super titles, because in addition to uh, Ms. Ridloff, who does very little actual speaking, because that's a major point of the play, um, there are at least two other actors uh, who uh, I believe uh, are or appear to be hearing impaired, and so their speech uh, can be somewhat difficult to understand. I think uh, this is an example of a play, and I, I, I suppose Peter would disagree, where um, it really was not that good to begin with, but the subject matter that it dealt with uh, is so interesting that it it did become uh, something that people really wanted to see. Uh, it, it, it certainly helped to have the 
stellar performances of John Rubenstein and Phyllis Frelick. Um, I think that uh, it's dated in the sense that now perhaps a lot of the issues maybe seem a little overexplained and a little too on the nose. The, the major issue is um, whether the, the character of Sarah Norman will or should learn to try to speak to the extent that she can speak with her with her voice uh, rather than just do signing. And it's a kind of in a uh, she refuses to do it as sort of an identity thing. It's the question of how uh, how much we should she should try to assimilate into the hearing and speaking world or just be a deaf person and and i and that remains very interesting so on that in on that sense uh, on that level i think the, the play is still worth seeing i i did not think that the production was very well done in terms of the direction by kenny leon um and although joshua jackson i mean it's kind of incredible for anyone who plays that role to be able to just just the sheer uh, memorization and the fact that you are signing almost everything you say—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's its its really very, very impressive on that level. I just thought he didn't have a lot of—he didn't have a, a, enough emotional transitions. There, there wasn't enough going on in that sense. Um, Lauren Ridloff was was quite wonderful as Sarah, um, and I uh, think that yeah. I mean, what I was saying before is. Um, you, you know, you look at plays like this and the boys in the band, some people would say is an example of that in, in the gay community. I, I would tend to disagree there, but it can, they can strike some people as a little dated in the sense of just having to really make points as if make as if they're being made for the first time in history. Um, so. Uh, but that, that's also why these plays are, are so very valuable and were so very valuable in their time and are still well worth seeing uh, from a historical context, if nothing else. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that it's back on Broadway in that sense, even though I don't think it's that it's very well done. And it will be interesting to see how audiences respond. I have heard that um, – it is not doing that well. Uh, so, and I, and that, that may be largely a function of the incredible amount of competition aside from everything else. Um, so we, we shall see, but it is at studio 54, uh, though not a, uh, well, I'm sorry. Yes. Roundabout is listed as one of the producers, but they're the last ones listed. So I don't know if this is really more of a, a rental situation uh, for them. I, 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 that's my impression. Uh, and But that's that's where the play is, if you'd like to see it. I uh, also uh, did, uh, I did see the original production, but never saw the film uh, with Marley Matlin. And um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, who is the William Hurt? William Hurt. Yeah. William Hurt. It just went out. Well, as I said, I didn't see it. Um, I'd like to see that and see how, how it gets opened up and, and see what changes were made in the script for the, for the film. So I have to try to track that down. Okay. So that's Children of a Lesser God over at uh, Studio 54. Um, Peter, you got to see MCC's production of Transfers at the Lucy Lortel. Tell us about that. This is second cousin to the play Admissions at Lincoln Center because it also deals with admissions as well. Uh, but more is at stake here in the sense that there are two young men who are vying for a scholarship. Uh, there are many more, actually, but we get to meet two of them. And um, 
and they knew each other from way back when. They weren't friends, but they knew each other. And um, one of them, uh, Christopher Rodriguez, is very intent on getting the scholarship and even lets it he doesn't let it spill out. He, he, it's not as if it happens accidentally. He tells the recruiter, uh, without a doubt, that uh, that uh, Clarence Matthews, the young black man, uh, is gay. And he's hoping that that's going to uh, be an issue in um, keeping him from getting the scholarship. So these guys are definitely uh, pitted against each other. Well, uh, what's going to happen? Um, we're going to see the interviews they have with the uh, the dean, and um, we're, we're certainly going to see them interact with uh, other people as well who have power over them in giving the scholarships. I especially like Samantha Soule, who played Rosie McNulty. She's the one who gets to interview Christopher Rodriguez, and um, and he makes a terrible first impression, and uh, she has to bear that uh, with as much good humor as she can. She's been, you get the impression she's been around the academic block many many times, and um, and it's going to be a situation where she's <laughs> going to have to suffer one more fool because he. It, to say he put his foot in his mouth is really um, – he put his feet in his mouth. He put his hands in his mouth. He does everything wrong. He does everything wrong so much that um, I got the impression that he would have to be the person who was chosen and that Clarence, who makes a nice impression, would not be chosen. Uh, that was my assumption. I'm not going to tell you what happens, but I will say that that was where I was starting to – believe would happen because indeed um, it would be unexpected. You would you don't expect the guy who has the bad interview to be the one chosen. So um, I'm pussyfooting around this, I'll admit, and I guess by my pussyfooting around, you're actually inferring what did happen. But um, very well written, very nicely written um, by uh, Lucy Thurber, who is certainly one of our emerging playwrights, um, and we're very lucky to have her. Um, Asheville, I thought, was a successful place some years ago, and Scarcity, too, uh, was one that was worth seeing. But um, nicely done at the Lucille Hotel, um, and MCC is um, going to be moving, so this may be one of the last shows at, uh, at the Lotel that they, they have, and um, this is a, a classic theater. I will admit it's uh, a theater that um, where the rake is not as good as it could be. So if you can get a closer seat, if you see transfers, you'll be better off than if you're in the back of the house. But um, under any circumstances, under Jackson Gay's direction, it's it's certainly a powerful evening. And I was very glad to be there and uh, see how things unfolded. All right. So uh, next up, Peter and Michael got a chance to see Red Bull Theater's production of uh, The Metromaniacs. So, uh, Michael, why don't you start us off with that? This is the latest delightful adaptation by David Ives of uh, a play from centuries ago. Um, he has uh, uh, adapted some plays by some very famous people, including Moliere and Corneille. Uh, this one is uh, as is explained in his uh, note in the program, which really should be read, his excellent note in the program, uh, this is based on an extremely uh, obscure uh, French play by uh, uh, someone named Alexis Piron. And the title, the original title is uh, La Métromanie, 
which means more or less, as he explains, the poetry craze. And it's um, very, very thickly plotted. I think this play uh, in the version that Mr. Ives wrote uh, may have more cases of assumed identity than any other play I have uh-huh. ever seen. Um, uh, but he does um, make it clear that that he that this I would say is an even more free adaptation than than some of his previous ones. Uh, and I, it's going to be hard if you want to try to track down the original uh, to do so because uh, David Ives in his note in the, in the program details what he had to go through to get that. Also, um, I don't think that the uh, the original version was ever translated into English. So if you don't speak French, you're 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 going to be um, out of luck. <laughs> uh, but uh, this is uh, it, it. It includes. Uh, it's written in in verse, in largely in rhyming couplets, uh, as these other Ives adaptations have been. And he has a really. He's really just 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 brilliant at that. Um, and he has a very wonderful, delightful way of mixing uh, period references with modern ones. For I'll, I'll give one example. Um, this play uh, at one point uh, it, it's set in Paris, but at one point somebody refers to Brittany, uh, which is a region in France, and then somehow, um, somehow, somehow, <laughs> yeah, the, the, somehow, the word, <laughs> go on. The word Spears comes up. <laughs> Uh, you know, and we so we get Brittany Spears uh, being spoken on stage in the, in this play. But I think uh, I, some people might object to some that. Might. Okay, all right, well, you, you you can go on, you can go on. Uh, but I do think that uh, I personally find it delightful because the the tone of these is so light and so um, farcical. I, I I guess that's a good word. They they, they don't. They are not in any way pretended to be period accurate. Um, so that's why I find it delightful rather than annoying. Uh, really wonderful cast, Christian Kahn, Amelia Pedlow, Noah uh, Averbach-Katz, Dina Thomas, Adam Green, Adam Lefebvre, and Peter Kybart, directed by um, the great Michael Kahn, who is coming to the end of his legendary tenure at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. He's, he's, he's stepping down after decades. Uh, this uh, Adaptation was uh, performed there before it came here to the Red Bull Theater, where it's being done at the Duke on 42nd Street. And I, uh, I highly commend it to everyone. So I'd be interested to hear Peter's thoughts. <laughs> um, I, the only thing that bothered me were the anachronisms. I don't see why they're necessary. Uh, I like anachronisms when we can justify that they actually could have been said. And that takes me to my beloved Something Rotten, in which um, people are discussing whether or not a musical would succeed. And we hear the line, they'll never go for it in Jersey. This is a very good line because it's often been said about people in New Jersey that they won't like certain shows that appear on Broadway um, for whatever reason. I won't go into that. But it could have been said in that time in Shakespearean era in England, they wouldn't go for it in Jersey because there is a Jersey England. So I love when anachronisms can actually play both sides of the street. So So it does bother me when they just come in for the sake of getting a cheap laugh. And, um, and that's what happens a lot in this play. Uh, People also say whatever a lot, which again is out of period, or at least I believe it's out of period. So if you can get past, 
past that, yes, you will have a good time with the Metromaniacs, which is classily done. And um, when you mentioned Michael Kahn, um, William Goldman's landmark book about the 1967-68 season, uh, called The Season, has Michael Kahn in it. Uh, He did two shows that season. One lasted one performance. That was the more successful of the two. The other one did not open. Um, But uh, one of the things that we always hear is persistence is what's important. And uh, you're right. His work at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington has been exemplary. I've seen a number of productions down there. And he certainly, I've seen uh, his work at the McCarter Theater, too, in Princeton when he was there. So uh, he turned out to be a major, major director. And um, don't forget the season. (laughs) is literally 50 years old now and uh, for him to still be on the scene yes he's retiring but look at that he's been around for so long so a real tribute to Michael Kahn who may have had a shaky start but it's not where you start it's where you finish so uh, so he did very nice work here in staging it in the correct style and I really especially liked the one who I thought was the most consistent was Adam Lefebvre uh, if indeed that's how it's pronounced uh, an actor I first discovered in the magnificent movie Return of the Secaucus 7 for those who know that movie he played JT the aspiring folk singer who we have our doubts will succeed um, and and uh, he's wonderful in that movie. And, of course, that was 1979 when that movie was made. So suddenly that's almost 40 years ago. So here he is. He's playing the Pater Familias in this show. And uh, I think he really gives the most consistent performance. And probably because he has the fewest anachronisms, uh, that may be the reason why. That he doesn't have to wink at us when he's um, saying any of his lines. So, uh, so if you aren't bothered by anachronisms, and Lord knows plenty of people aren't, uh, because they certainly went to Aladdin, where um, anachronisms abound uh, <laughs> for every other line. So, so uh, if it doesn't bother you, you will have a good time with the Metromaniacs. All right. Uh, Michael, you got to get over to Carnegie Hall for a one-night-only benefit concert in celebration of the Leonard Bernstein centennial. So it's C. Candide. So tell us about that. I was really lucky to to see it. One of my favorite pieces. Although every time you see Candide, you're going to see something different. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> uh, and I, I certainly can't go into its history, but I, I'm, I trust a lot of our listeners know it already. If not, you can read up on it. Uh, music by Leonard Bernstein. Book by well, <laughs> yeah. book, book by you Wheeler is how what I saw is credited here. Lyrics by Richard Wilbur. Additional lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, John Latouche, Lillian Hellman, Dorothy Parker, and Leonard Bernstein. Narration excerpted from you Wheeler and Voltaire um, and performed uh, in this case by John Lithgow, who also basically doubled in the role of Dr. Pangloss. I... Actually, I think I heard a lot more Voltaire than you Wheeler, because I do know that the you Wheeler version of the show best. Um, so I, I I don't know how accurate that um, that credit is, but uh, I, uh, I that was anyway, that was my impression. Orchestrations by Leonard Bernstein and Hershey Kay. Additional orchestrations by John Mauchery. Um, and this production, a, a musical director and conductor, Rob Fisher. Uh, starring Paul Appleby as Candide, Aaron Morley as 
as Kuniganda, Patricia Reset as the old lady, William Burden as the governor, uh, as I said, John Lithgow as Pangloss, um, Ryan Silverman was Maximilian, uh, Brianna M- Marie Parham was Paquette, uh, Special appearances by, again, Len Cariou and the great opera singer Marilyn Horn, um, uh, who was brought on stage in a wheelchair. I haven't seen her in, in some time. She is quite elderly and has had some health issues in recent years, but it was just wonderful to see her on stage. And she got an amazing hand from the audience. Oh, and, and in a very late uh, addition to the cast, Danny Burstein had a cameo as Ch- Don Issachar, the Jew. Um, and of course, needless to say, he also was very well received by the audience. I, um, I was a little nonplussed by the addition of the score that was used. If I understand correctly, it was based largely on a recording that Bernstein himself conducted of Candide not long before he died. Um, He put together his own edition of it, and it's got... You know, a, a different combination of, of different songs than than probably any other single version of it that you've seen. Um, but the orchestra played so beautifully uh, in this production, and the singing w- was of such incredibly high caliber that it uh, I I was delighted to be there. I uh, I did see City Opera. Uh, in its uh, in w- or what remains of it, do uh, do a Candide a couple of years ago, and uh, that was a, a revival of the Hal Prince production. But this was just a a very uh, beautifully played and sung concert presentation. With I have to say, um, the projections which spanned the entire uh, length and 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 height of the back wall of Carnegie Hall somebody put really put a lot of time and effort into those so bravo to that person it it really made it feel like um a, a much fuller performance than if it we just had a blank wall all night uh candide one of the masterworks of the theater that people keep, <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if it's been rewritten lately, except, well, this one was, it really was, because as I uh-huh. say, it seemed to have so much Voltaire in it, uh, lines that I never heard before. Um, uh, but the score is the thing and, and always will be. So I, I think any version of it that you end up seeing will likely be very, very satisfying on that level, though I would urge you, uh, if, if at all possible, to see uh, and hear uh, this score played by a full orchestra. All right. So that's Candide, and it's come and gone. But we'll see it again, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a bunch of times. <laughs> Uh, Peter, you saw the Wheelhouse Theatre Company's production of Happy Birthday, Wanda June at the Gene Frankel Theatre, so tell us about that. I will never forget October 25th, 1970. Uh, that was the day I was offered press seats for um, Happy Birthday, Wanda June. Um, I was a high school teacher at the time, and I uh, could only go on weekends. And they said, the only time we can accommodate you is October 25th. And that was a real problem because on that night was being broadcast on TV. And this is before taping or anything else like that. The company original cast album documentary 
Wow. It may not quite be Sophie's choice, I'll grant you, but it was very hard to make a decision whether or not to stay home and watch the company documentary. I was living in Boston at the time, or traveling to New York and seeing Happy Birthday 1 to June. But I'm a big Kurt Vonnegut fan, and um, I couldn't miss the play. So um, as it turned out, it was I, I made the right decision because, of course, the company documentary has been available uh, both on VHS and DVD, and I've seen it many times since. And Happy Birthday 1 to June... Uh, even though there was a movie made, uh, try to find it. It's very hard uh, to find Happy Birthday 1 to June. I, I, if you speak Spanish, there's a Spanish <laughs> dubbed edition that you can buy. Anyway, Happy Birthday 1 to June. Um, a very controversial play at its time, but a very interesting one. And one that speaks to today as well, um, because it's very red state, blue state. It didn't mean to be, but uh, that's the way it really seems now, because this is a play about Harold Ryan. Harold Ryan uh, was a big game hunter, but he was also a war hero. Remember, 1970, when it was first produced, it was time, colon, now. So, um, a big war hero, and so was his best friend, uh, Colonel Loose Leaf Harper. I don't know what Loose Leaf's real name is. I don't think it's Loose Leaf, but anyway, um, he, he it's not a bad name for him considering that he's a little scattered. But is he scattered because he's the man who dropped the atomic bomb on Nagasaki? You know, that does affect a man, doesn't it? But he and Harold are best friends, and they've been missing for years, years, presumed dead, that type of thing. And um, his wife, uh, Penelope, by the way, you'll notice uh, analogies here to uh, to uh, Greek myths. But anyway, his wife uh, has assumed he's dead, and as a result, she's been dating, and she's been dating two guys. Well, Harold shows up on the scene after all these years away, and he's a rough-and-tumble guy. You know, He's a real man, as it's perceived, and she is dating men that he doesn't perceive as real men. One's a vacuum cleaner salesman, um, so, of course, um, he has great contempt for him that that's what he does. Another one is a doctor, but um, he's, um, as the expression went in those days, hippy-dippy. Um, he certainly has values that have no relationship whatsoever to Harold's. And so that's what I mean by blue state, red state. Uh, there really is a difference in perception here. And he can, Harold cannot believe what's happened to his wife, who was um, a, a car hop in a, a drive-in uh, restaurant when he met her. And that's all he needed because she was pretty and she was dumb at that point in time. And that appealed to him. Well, she wasn't dumb. She was simply ignorant. And since the years have gone by, now she has a master's degree in English literature which just astonishes him so here's a strange person in a strange land even in the, even though he's in his own home i'll admit that there are times when the play takes detours i'll admit that there are times when you're saying what's going on here in the worst sense of the word not that uh, it, uh vonnegut really he didn't really have control of it he really didn't but there is so much good in this and this is such a terrific production of it absolutely terrific. I was really so impressed by what Jeff Wise brought to the play as a director. But to see the performance of Jason O'Connell as uh, Harold Ryan is really, really something. This guy really is a Neanderthal, and he does it extraordinarily <laughs> well. Extraordinarily well. Um, also, I should mention, there's a kid in the show, too, um, Paul Ryan. That's, the, ironically enough, <laughs> Paul Ryan. <laughs> Nobody knew. Um, and he is the, um, the son of Harold, who has not known his father. 
And, um, of course, he's been brought up uh, knowing men who are sensitive, men who are intelligent, men who think rather than act first, men who are not street fighters. Uh, the problem with street fighters is that street fighters tend to want to start fights rather than discuss. And um, so Harold has issues with his son, too, um, labeling him by names that we don't quite like anymore. But uh, so... Really, I it has a week to go, and I think you should get down there to the Gene Frankel Theater, which is on um, Bond Street, not far from the public, just a little bit uh, more south uh, than the public, uh, maybe a three-minute walk from the public, and uh, and get to see Happy Birthday, Wanda June. I think it's a very, very effective evening, even when it strays and um, goes off the track. All right, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, to wrap up this morning, Michael, you got a chance to see uh, a production of Hair at Wagner College, your alma mater. So tell us about that. Yes, I, I it, realistically, I don't suppose there's much chance that our listeners will get out to Staten Island to see this production, which uh, closes next Sunday, the 29th. But I did want to call attention to it because I saw it last night, and it is a stellar lunar and solar production of this this epic making early rock musical by Galt McDermott, music by Galt McDermott, book and lyrics by Jerome Ragney. Uh, this production is directed and choreographed by a fellow named Darren Lee, who has some uh, major uh, Broadway and, and uh, professional credits, but uh, nothing uh, prepared me for his his amazing, brilliant work here as director and choreographer. The, you know, This is a show uh, in which the ensemble is almost never off stage. They're in constant motion, and uh, the music also uh, d doesn't really ever stop for long. There are so many uh, little separate songs in it. Um, the, this is the 50th anniversary of the Broadway production of Hair. It opened off Broadway in 67, on Broadway in 68. Uh, I imagine we'll be seeing other productions of it. But if this is the only one I see in the 50th anniversary uh, year, I, I will consider myself very happy. I am absolutely going to try to return. Uh, I think I'm going to try to go to the final performance. Uh, Galt McDermott is a Staten Islander and in fact lives about five minutes from the campus, the Wagner College campus, and he is um, hopefully going to be there for the final performance. But I, I, I want to see it again anyway. Um, really congratulations to a stellar 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 cast headed by john drinkwater as burger uh, gabriel chimber as wolf tyler ross as hud kevin atwater as claude sophia tsugros as sheila sabrina kalman as genie hadley patterson as chrissy remy barson as margaret mead and travis harley as dion um just about as good as it can possibly get for college theater and really any theater theater at any level just superb all right so uh you do have uh another week to get out there if you can as michael mentioned and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well so before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes or Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways you can listen to us. iHeartRadio is one. Tune in. Uh, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio. 
Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com in the show notes, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. A bunch of uh, links for Lynn Aaron's, the 92nd Street Y Lyrics and Lyricist series, uh, some videos, things like that, uh, and all the shows that we've talked about today. Um, so, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yes, um, but nobody got it. And um, I have a feeling it's because of two reasons. One is that it, I, I asked about something that happened in the 19th century, which is a long time ago, isn't it? And uh, secondly, I don't even think I worded it very well, but I will say exactly what I said before. And that was a smash hit play of the 19th century had a character with a first and last name. He was repurposed into a smash hit musical of the 50s that separated those two names by a preposition. What was the 19th century play, the character's name, the 50s musical, and the character's expanded name? So that's convoluted, I'll grant you. I was going for Simon Legree in Uncle Tom's Cabin, who was known as Simon of Legree in The King and I in The Small House of Uncle Thomas. So that's what I was going for, and um, my apologies to all if it was just a little too convoluted. Hopefully uh, this will be um, stronger this week. So in terms of the best musical Tony winners... What is interesting about the years 1958, 1963, 1976, 1981, 1990, and 2007? All right. If you have a, uh, an answer here, uh, email us at TriviaBroaderRadio.com. We'll let you know if you are on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Things my heart. St-